0: This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer. I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. As I like to do from time to time, I will not be comparing serial killers today. I will be discussing the book The Last Victim by Jason Moss and the movie that is based on the book called Dear Mr. Gacy. Before we jump into that, though, I will remind you to... Keep an eye out on all the uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, murderlabmedia.com, and all that shiz to make sure that you know what's up. So every once in a while, I throw some stuff out there, like I might throw out a meme, we don't know. We do have some exciting things coming up. For example, I have something called Podcast in the Park. It is primarily for people with podcasts, and especially those who like alliteration but it will be on Saturday, May 22nd at 1 o'clock at Eastwood Metro Park. There will be more details as to exactly where in the park to meet. Again, it's mostly for people who have podcasts and would like to get together and discuss each other's podcasts and, you know, let each other know about the existence of our podcast and, you know, maybe share ideas and tips and tricks with each other and commiserate over all that is podcasting. If you are a podcaster and you would like to come and chat... Mark, Saturday, May 22nd on your calendars. There will be another podcasting event coming up in August, hosted by Daniel Hood. So he may be on hand to try to get some ideas of what everybody wants to do with the August podcasting event, which will include the Dayton and Cincinnati area. It's hard to believe that in just a few weeks, Igor and I will be on a plane to Texas to go to CrimeCon. There are all kinds of exciting things happening at CrimeCon. CrimeCon CC21, Austin. CrimeCon, just to let you know, if you're not familiar, quoting from their webpage, the idea is to completely immerse ourselves in the genre. So that means everything from educational sessions on things like ballistics, polygraphs, DNA, etc., to unique experiences that help us all get a better understanding of the difference between true crime in movies and TV versus real life. So in that, that line, they have different people who speak, some people who will be there, Laura Brand and Maurice Godwin, who talk about the Toolbox Killers, Bittaker and Norris. There will be Nikki Egan, who will be talking about Chasing Cosby and talk about Bill Cosby. Mark McClish, he knows about liars, so he will talk to you about his expert analysis of lying. And then some of the podcasters that will be there is Affirmative Murder Podcast, The Philosophy of Crime with James Renner, Texas One and True Crime, and True Crime All the Time. So there'll be quite a few exciting things happening. And when we come back, we uh, Igor and I will record an episode and tell you what we thought of the experience and all that. So we are excited to be part of that, to be going to that. We're not technically part of it, but maybe someday. We don't know. We're excited just to be going. I will also be planning an event for people just to come and hang out, you know, fans of the show who maybe want some merch or whatever. So keep an eye out for that as well. I'll be having that in June. I think that's pretty much it we have by the way of business. Let me give you a quick uh, rundown of The Last Victim. I found this in one of my thrift books shopping trips, and I, I hadn't heard of it before, but it's called The Last Victim, A True Life Journey into the Mind of the Serial Killer by Jason Moss with Jeffrey Cutler, PhD. What's intriguing about this is, I'll just read the back of the book to you so you can get the feel for it. It started with a college course assignment, then escalated into a dangerous obsession. Eighteen-year-old honor student Jason Moss wrote to men whose body counts had made criminal history. Men named Dahmer, Manson, Ramirez, and Gacy. Posing as their ideal victim, Jason seduced them with his words. One by one, they wrote him back, showering him with their madness and violent fantasies. Then the game spun out of control. John Wayne Gacy revealed all to Jason and invited his pen pal to visit him in prison. It was an offer Jason couldn't turn down, even if it made him the last victim. So there's kind of an idea about that. It's reminiscent of Anthony Siaglia, who I covered in an episode when I was talking about the book, The Serial Killer Whisperer. He had also written to a bunch of serial killers. It's it's not the same guy. So if that's where your mind went, it's not the same person who had that experience. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, go back and listen to that episode. I will post it in the episode references so that we'll know which one to go to. This guy, Jason Moss, was a freshman in college and he decided he wanted to write a paper on serial killers in the prison system and things like that. But he didn't just want to do your same old, you know, this is what the serial killer said. He wanted to pose as a potential victim and try to see how they would react. So he would basically act like bait in a trap and see how the their behavior would be in constricting around them, around him and trying to control him and all that. The book goes into depth about that. Some basic details. His mom was into true crime. So he grew up with his mom constantly talking about true crime stuff to the point where he's like, I don't really need to know the details of what all they did to this person. And so he was, it was kind of one of those things that was more of his mom's thing. His mom was also fairly unpredictable. He had a girlfriend named Jen. He had a father and his parents were married. His father was kind of quiet, like... His mom tended to have stronger opinions about things, or she would have a, a bigger force of will than the father. So if the father objected, the mother tended to outroll things. And his dad was would try to come to his defense and things like that. He had a younger brother named Jared. Um, surprisingly enough, no one was too supportive of him wanting to write to serial killers. Most people were like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why would you even begin to want to talk to those kind of people? So no one was very supportive of it. So he was stuck defending himself a lot, and even to himself. The way that he approached Gacy in his letters is he thought he should pretend to be sexually confused and highly impressionable. He wanted to make up stories that would mirror Gacy's childhood. So he, he delved into the research. He read... Of course, he read a bunch of stuff about Gacy. He also went and spoke to male sex workers because he wanted to get terms right, because um, because he wanted to seem vulnerable. And some of the guys that Gacy killed, some of the teenagers were sex workers. So he wanted to really understand the role and be able to, to play along convincingly. So, he, <laughs> so this kid and, and this kid, I say he's a kid. He was like 18 or 19 at this point. But he had never had experience with that kind of thing. So he went to a bartender at a gay bar and was like, hey, I want to talk to a male sex worker. What do I do? And he's like, well, I don't know. Go to the personal ads. So he went to the personal ads, found a sex worker, and then approached him. And the guy actually told him, gave him tips about what the kind of things that he went through and things like that. So that's how he presented himself to Gacy. Before I jump into some of the things that they talked about and how their conversations went, I think it's important to quote things to go through why Jason felt that he wanted to do this or needed to do this. And I'm quoting. Fear is a big theme in my life. Always has been. And every time I confront someone or something that makes me uneasy, my second impulse, after stifling the urge to run, is to study the source of my anxiety in an attempt to control it. As regards to this plan to gain the confidence of several serial killers... It felt like if I could fool someone like Gacy, I could manage him and others like him, then I'd be protected against harm. This was magical thinking, I know, even irrational. But when this whole thing began, this was the only motive I could clearly articulate to myself, even if it didn't satisfy others. What I realized is that the only answer people would accept was that I was working on a research project for school. When I was totally honest with myself, I realized that part of the reason I was reaching out to these killers was that I admired them. Not for their crimes, certainly. Their behavior was beyond reprehensible, but for their nerve and follow-through. Not only did they dare to spit in the face of the rules that govern all people everywhere, but they did it repeatedly, as if taunting those who would try to control them. Only later, after it was all over, would I realize the truth, that the perversion I read about, and ultimately witnessed, was weakness masquerading as strength. Now, I actually read, like, three or four. Those quotes were from different sections, and not necessarily all together, so just so you know that. Jason said that since he was, since a young age, he recognized the value of pretending to be dumber than he was because then he can study people and kind of get the lay of the land with them. He had a hard time trusting people, quote, not sure why, but I believed that given the chance, almost everyone would try to hurt me. It may have been those true crime stories I was raised on. He goes on to say, winning was not just a game for me. It was as if my whole life was at stake every time I was asked to perform. So he certainly was a perfectionist and whenever he would get involved with something, he would totally throw himself into it. Like he played the trumpet and then he um, he noticed that students were collecting baseball cards. So he didn't start collecting them. He started selling them. Then he got into coin collecting and he would enter like in all of this stuff, he would like enter competitions and he would take it to like the absolute limit of not just doing it, but he would you know go all the way with it. He also got into weightlifting and kickboxing, and he would be obsessive about each thing until he felt that he had met the challenge that he had set in his own mind about them, and then he would move on to the next thing. His parents sheltered him. He says, Although I won the Presidential Academic Fitness Award at age 11, I was still viewed by my parents as being weak and vulnerable. Hence, I wasn't permitted to view anything on television or in the movies that might upset my weak stomach. So then he finally wound, wore down his parents about horror movies, and then he got obsessed with those, of course. One of the things that he noticed about his interactions with Gacy is he would constantly, Gacy would constantly reference masturbation. He said several times things like, as long as it's consenting and you feel good about it, then go for it. So he would specifically say, as long as it's consenting, which is obviously ironic coming from him. Sometimes he felt Gacy was trying to trick him. Like he would say, do you remember when you said you were wearing that red shirt? How come you haven't mentioned that shirt again? So he knew that Gacy was indexing his responses and things And that he's remembering things that that Jason's telling him. And this is specifically important because Jason is playing him. So he has to keep an eye out on everything that he's saying because he's lying, you know. So when you're lying, you got to keep track of the lies to keep up the charade. Jason kept his own journal that would say, okay, I told him that I was wearing this and I gave him this detail. And, you know, and so he kept close track so that way Gacy couldn't catch him in a lie or a, a falsity. He says about his relationship with Gacy, to be honest... I felt a kind of friendship. Remember, I wasn't corresponding with a man who talked about killing or even sex all the time. Sometimes he'd ask about school or we'd talk baseball and other sports. Even when I asked him directly about the murders, he was convincing and logical in proclaiming his innocence. There were times when I'd actually believe what he was saying. Jason, so many other people had keys to my house. They were always coming and going. They were using drugs. I was working so many hours, I was never home. It was like my house was a recreation center for kids. I had a pool table and everything. Besides, do you really think I'm so stupid that I'd actually bury the bodies beneath my own house? Uh, Jason goes on to say, Remember, too, that logic had always been my own favorite weapon, the tool I used to convince anyone of almost anything. Because I relied so much on logic myself, I was unusually susceptible to others' rational arguments. And I've got to tell you, Gacy was a master. Each time I'd poke a hole in his story, he'd find some way to explain it away, and I was actually starting to feel more and more sympathetic to his cause. That is, until he changed the rules of our relationship. One thing that um, Jason is good about in this book is building the tension and, uh, you know, teasing you with with the um, foreshadowing. That was an enticing thing about the book, is that he kept it moving forward and kept you... Um, He kept implying things so that, you know, you'd want to keep reading and find out what happened. Gacy claimed to have had a youthful relationship with his sister. And that was the first time Jason had ever heard of it. So that was an interesting little tidbit, which will uh, come into play a little bit here in a little bit. So Jason says he hears about the Stockholm Syndrome, where kidnapped victims begin to identify with their captors, where they're actually, like, sympathetic toward them. And he never thought that he would ever feel empathy to a cold-blooded murderer. But he says, I suppose in retrospect, it was inevitable But I was unprepared to deal with the confusing feelings Gacy's letter invoked. I wanted to look at this monster almost as a specimen, as a thing to be examined, analyzed, manipulated, and in some ways tested. Yet I began to see him as a pitiful human being who was doing the best he could like everyone else. I was repulsed by my own compassion. All I had to do was think about Gacy's victims and their childless parents to remember who and what I was really dealing with. I will interject here that if you look at what Gacy looked like, he didn't look terribly threatening. Especially once he's shaved and stuff. I mean, he just looks like this little buddy man, especially with his gray hair and stuff. So he doesn't look like he's scary. And if you hear his voice, I actually listen to his voice to see if I want to do some kind of loose impression of him. It's just a dude with a regular voice. Like, he, it's, it's kind of high. Like, it's just a high voice. He just talks. And he doesn't really have a very thick accent, at least not from the bit that I listen to. So he doesn't sound scary, certainly. So it's easy to think when you are when you know what he's done and you're sitting where you're sitting, if you've never been through anything like this, to think, how the hell did, would, did he get real then? But like he said, if he's not always talking about killing, he says he's not a killer and he just seems like a normal guy, then, you know, you can kind of see why he would get sucked into it. So he suspected that Gacy was unwittingly revealing his philosophy towards his victims, that as long as they as they were satisfied first, he felt he could do whatever he wanted. So his idea of consent was they made it seem like this thing is okay. So now whatever else I do is okay too. Even if they start complaining or protesting, they gave me initial consent. So anything that I do now is okay. He wanted more information on Jason's little brother. And Jason was very protective of his little brother. At first he asked his brother if he would just send him a letter. And he said, I just need your handwriting. I'll tell you what to say. You just write to him and I'll read all the responses and you don't really have to interact with him. Well, obviously the brother was like, he's, killed kids, you know, <laughs> in terrible ways. I don't want to get involved with this. What he wound up doing is he would type letters. So he would just he would start typing instead of handwriting things so that way he can write as both himself and his brother. And then that way he can also keep tabs on what he's saying to Gacy as his brother Jared. He started writing to Gacy as both himself and his younger brother. Gacy started coaching Jason on selling himself in the streets because as I said, Jason was trying to make it seem like he's vulnerable and he needs money. So he's trying to set hustle and things like that. So Gacy starts co- coaching him. Well, then Gacy starts saying, I want to talk to you on the phone. Now from prison, he would have to call collect. And at first, Jason's like, my parents are not going to like, that's going to be expensive. And I don't know if they're going to want you to talk to me in the first place. But Gacy said he would pay for the calls. And Jason so happened to have his own phone line. So they start talking on the phone they start talking, and it gets to be a weekend thing. So like every Saturday morning or Sunday morning, sometimes during the week, they would talk to each other. They got into an argument, and uh, Jason says, What I found most disconcerting about this conversation was that it was like we were lovers who'd had an argument and were trying to make up. I was stuck in the role of the victim and was pretending to act hurt while he was playing a part of his own, pretending he was sorry for his insensitivity. As exciting as this all was... I couldn't help but feel disgusted that I was acting like such a wimp. And a thing that Gacy would frequently do is he would offer gifts to people to set them at ease if there was some kind of tension. So he actually gave Jason several paintings, making sure to tell them how much they were worth. So he would say here that this is worth several thousand dollars, but I'm just going to send it to you because I care for you. That would win him over more. And it's another important thing to point out is when he says that I couldn't help feeling disgusted that I was acting like such a wimp. As it was starting to take its toll on him, where he was pretending to be this certain way and it was wearing on him. And to hear the things that, that Gacy would tell him did start to affect him. He started to hear his parents arguing and they were arguing about him and his what he was doing. His brother started having nightmares about Gacy getting him and things like that. So it definitely started to take its toll on his family. So instead of stopping, because again, he's a perfectionist, he's obsessive, he has this idea he's going to do it. He just stopped sharing stuff with his family. And he figured, well, if I just don't talk about it, then, you know, it won't hurt them. And he figures, I'll just take this all on myself because it's my idea. Gacy would send him checks to cover the collect phone calls. He would write him three or four letters a week and send him packages with paintings or pornographic books and pictures of nude men. At one point, Gacy listed out all of the books and chapters of books, screenplays, songs, and articles written about them saying that 80% of it were lies. (laughs) Jason pointed out that Gacy loved the attention that he was getting, even if he proclaimed his innocence and he thought it was, he claimed that he was in an uproar about being framed by the police or whatever. He loved the attention. It was obvious. Something Jason also realized was how cushy Gacy had it. He had a private cell with a TV. He got money from the sale of his paintings, so he had money to to bribe the guards. Now, when I saw the, the note about how he was making money from the sale of his paintings, I got a little confused because I know that there's a thing called the Son of Sam Law where when Berkowitz was in prison, he was set to make money off of a book that was going to be written about him. But the families of the victims and people were outraged because they're like, you shouldn't make money off of something terrible that you've done. You should not make money off of murdering people. So what happened is he was allowed to sell the book, but the proceeds had to go to the families of the victims and things like that. Apparently, though, from what I I looked at, is it just Gacy and Berkowitz were about the same time. And it seems like it was um, kind of a state by state thing and it wasn't necessarily always enforced. So it is a thing, but apparently it didn't apply to Gacy. That's an interesting little tidbit there. Gacy would recommend masturbation techniques and then ask Jason about it. Gacy was also obsessive about things he would consistently say hey remember when I told you to do it this way did you do that at first Jason might be like oh that's a good idea or, you know try to try to appease him and say yeah yeah okay but then Gacy would keep asking for details so then Jason would have to come up with some something and and then he would write it down so he'd remember what he said about it Gacy would try to be careful what he said which is funny because if you see some of the things that he said to him like that was trying to be careful the reason is because even though he was on death row and he was going to be killed pretty soon, he was still worried that if he said something compromising, it might get back to someone that mattered, like a judge or a politician, and that might affect his appeals process. So he would try to use code or be delicate about things that he would say. Now, Jason, it made it seem like his dads were, his parents were abusive, especially his dad, because Gacy's dad was abusive to him. And so Gacy would say, hey, I'm your only friend. I'm there for you. You don't have anyone else. Your family doesn't care. At one point, he said to him, Jason, the Bible preaches against taking your own life. But sometimes it's the right thing to do. Your life will hit rock bottom someday. And when the time is right, you'll know what to do and also how to do it. So that's fucking creepy because he says about taking your own life, sometimes it's the right thing to do when the time is right. You'll know what to do and how to do it. I mean, can you imagine someone who feels like they're friends with you saying that to you? Like, I, I don't know. It's just that that's just a level of manipulation that he had over Jason. And it's I it fucked Jason up you know, to hear that. He's like, is he encouraging me to kill myself? Like, this is this is fucked. Speaking of this is fucked. He also wanted Jason to have sex with his younger brother and he would give him ideas how to do it. So he would say, and I'm not going to get into into too many details because it is upsetting. He would say things like, oh, you know, just sneak into his room at night and start wrestling with him. And then brush your hand against his stuff. And then get him excited. And then, you know, and then you'll just kind of naturally get into things and things will happen. And then, you know, he would just give him tips like that. He would say, so here's something that Gacy said to him about it. The other sensations will be letting him think he is controlling you while you're doing the leading. But you have to feel out his thinking and if he's willing to experiment. If that is the green light, the next move is being aggressor to show him you're serious or he will think it's just a joke. That age, it will be a sweet load of adventure and a way of trying new things and will draw you closer in a way. He's teaching him how to be a manipulator. And it's just the grand irony is that it's like the predator, Gacy, is telling his prey about how to become a predator but he's also kind of giving away what he's doing to his prey <laughs> as a predator. So it's this weird loop. But also, on top of that, you have Jason as the predator, who is using Gacy as a prey to get information. So there's all these levels that just kind of is mind-boggling. And it's also very telling of what, how Gacy probably handled his victims. So he goes to, you have to make it seem like you're being empathetic, but then you have to take charge so they know that you're serious. And then he tries to make justify it even more by saying, you know what, this is going to bring you closer. It's disgusting and intriguing and disgusting. In addition to Gacy, Jason also started to write to Manson. The way that he approached Manson is he decided to say they had a friend in common. And he figured Manson's probably met so many people that he wouldn't remember names all the time. So he could just make up a name and Manson would just be like, okay, whatever. He said they have a friend in common that encouraged him to write to Manson because Jason is posing as someone who wants to continue Manson's work and vision. His thought process was most of the people writing to Manson would want something. So they'd want like an interview or a souvenir or something. So he figured, I knew he'd be more likely to respond if he didn't think that I wanted something from him, but rather that I was in a position to help him. He portrayed himself as a poor, angry man. That's the, um, the trick that he used to try to get... Manson to write to him now Manson's first letter to him <laughs> was apparently almost illegible and he did not know I think it was a postcard and he did not understand how the postcard made it to him because you could almost not read what it said but then he realized that he was close with a mail carrier and he would actually duck out of school run home meet the mail carrier to get the mail because he didn't want his parents to look at them at the letters or see how much correspondence he was really getting in things so he'd run home get the mail and then go back to school So he got to be close with the mail person and she was a nice woman. The next time he saw her, he was like, how did this even get to me? And she said that she knew that he was getting because he had told her he was getting letters from prisoners and that, you know, and so if it said like from Menard Correctional Facility, she knew that it was going to Jason. So when she saw something from a, you know, a prison, she was like, well, it's got to be for Jason. And she commented to him that the people at the post office were talking about him. Because they're like, who the hell is writing to these serial killers? Like, what the hell is wrong with them? And they're like, what is, what is wrong with this kid? And she would kind of defend him. And he had a good relationship with his mail carrier. So he was able to get all of the letters, no matter how much gibberish they were. Manson, he said, was stark and enigmatic. He sent him a reading list and then gave him the address of another guy that would be able to give him more material. So against his better judgment... which apparently I'm not sure he had a whole lot of. Jason did contact the other guy, and that guy gave him stuff to read, religious books, Manson videos, and then other people to contact. He actually forwarded that information to the FBI, including the information about the guy that was giving him the information. (laughs) But he doesn't know if the FBI did anything with it. Here's a thing that I had not mentioned yet, but will blow your mind. Jason used his own address. He was giving his address to serial killers... And letting them write to him, and the reason why though is his initial thought was, well, I'll do it to a PO box because I'll feel safer that way. But if they see a PO box, they might not trust me. They will feel that I'm vulnerable and trustworthy, and I'm trusting them by doing my own home address. And I'll just, and again, he was kind of naive about everything because why would they really take the time out of their day to send someone over to get him and his family or break out of prison and come get him? So you know, he's like, I don't think that that's likely. Use his own address. Manson would lecture, quote, about dozens of different topics that seem randomly chosen. Sometimes, for no apparent reason, he'd become enraged. At other times, he'd be very gentle and sensitive. I never knew what to expect. Eventually, Jason started to lose interest. First of all, because he didn't feel—Manson felt like he's not a true serial killer, but he was a cult leader, and he's not going to be able to get to communicate on the level that Jason needed— And that, quote, the constant rambling in his letters began to grow tiresome and confusing. (laughs) One thing that he did note about Manson's letters is that almost all of the letters were written on the back of letters that were sent to Manson. And at first he thought that Manson was short on paper, but then he realized that Manson had his own stationery. Seemed like he was mocking those who'd written to him and sharing his disdain. Which, that's an interesting little uh, tidbit. Like, most of the time he would just write on the back of it, like there was nothing on the other side. So he wouldn't even acknowledge that he was using another person's letter. Sometimes he would actively mock the person who had written to him in the letter. So that's fun. He developed a new goal as he was talking to Manson and Gacy. He was hoping that someday the FBI might hire him as a psychologist or serial killer profiler. So that's, that's something that was developing as he was getting more, deeper and deeper into this project. He also decided to write to Jeffrey Dahmer. Now his interest in Dahmer, he said... <sighs> On a scale of revulsion, this was indisputably at the top of anyone's list. Gacy, or even Manson, seemed downright civilized by comparison. But one of the things that was intriguing to him is because Dahmer was so alien, he was like a new species of deviant. And that's exactly what he said, a new species of deviant. His approach to Dahmer, as we see, every person that he speaks to, he caters what he says to them to try to reel them in and and make them feel comfortable and entice them, so to speak. He decided that he would seem all alone in a world as depraved as his, focusing on pain, misery, and sexual confusion. His goal was to get him to share some coping advice from his own experience. So I'll go ahead and read to you the introductory, the um, the letter that Jason first sent to Dahmer. Dear Jeff... My name is Jason Moss, and I'm writing you this letter because it's very late at night where I am, and I'm taking care of my sick grandmother. She's been throwing up all night, and I'm afraid she's going to die. If she dies, I'll be all alone. Both of my parents were killed in a car crash last year, and I now have to live with my grandmother. I feel very alone and scared, and sometimes I just want to die. I feel like I live in a world all alone, far from everyone. I've heard about the things they say you've done, and I understand how you feel not wanting to be alone and all. I feel like I need a strong man in my life— And sometimes I just think about holding one of my friends, giving him a hug, and never letting go. Maybe we can be friends. Is there anything you need there in prison? Is there anything I can do for you, like sending some magazines? I'd really appreciate hearing from you. Knowing that there is someone out there who cares might make living a little easier. Have a Happy New Year, your friend Jason Moss. If you know anything about Dahmer, you know right off the bat, by saying something about a grandmother, that's exactly pulling from Dahmer's own life. Dahmer was raised... He lived with his grandma for a while. So there's that. And then, of course, feeling, playing on the feeling of being alone. And sometimes I want to hold one of my friends and never let go. So you can see he was good at just at pulling out those very big points that Dahmer would be able to relate to. When Dahmer wrote back, he was gracious and polite and apologized for taking so long to respond. He was interested in receiving magazine subscriptions that <laughs> Jason learned were explicit gay publications. Prisoners weren't allowed to have their own subscriptions, so that's a lot of times prisoners will ask for. Apparently, that's what I've learned from this, is pretty much everyone he talked to wanted magazines because they can't do them themselves, but they can get them as gifts. He asked for a picture of Jason. When Jason answered, Dahmer responded immediately. He was polite, but he included a provocative photo of a naked man with a full erection, as you would. Dahmer said, "'Let me know when you're ready to pursue a serious relationship.'" As long as you have the time without distraction, I would be more than open to it. He was obviously all about it and interested in, obviously, more than just being pen pals. But then he was talking about having Jason come visit him in prison. Shortly after, though, Dahmer was killed in prison. So that was the end of that. What I do think is interesting is how right off the bat, as at least with Gacy and Dahmer, is sending explicit pictures to to the person like so there's a part of me like I don't know that sending a dick pic on the first letter is the best plan like it seems pretty forward but then again we're talking about someone in prison for eating people so I gotta remember standards are a little different and if you're writing to someone in prison it's a whole other level so <laughs> they, they probably assume you're writing to them in prison you know what they've done you can handle it which I get and you know what you're in prison go for it Go for it, go for it. I had mentioned earlier that all of this was starting to affect him. So I'm going to read a quick little part that explains kind of what he was going through at that time, because that's that's a really important part of this. In spite of the elation I was feeling over the solid preparation that went into writing to Dahmer... There was a spillover that was taking its toll on me emotionally. Though I didn't fully realize it at the time, obsessively reading about necrophilia and cannibalism was beyond the limits of what I could handle. It can't be very good for even a trained psychologist or detective to think about murder all the time to empathize both with the perpetrators of the most horrible crimes ever committed and with their victims. Just imagine what such reflection can do to a first-year college student whose experience of the world has been confined to one metropolitan area. My obsession was isolating me further. More and more often, I began avoiding my friends. Jen and I broke up for a while, not just because of my latest project, but just because of conflicts over diverging life goals. There was also continual tension at home, including fights between and with my parents, and even some distancing on Jared's part. To my deepening dismay, I was becoming like the monsters I was studying, not in their homicidal urges, but in their perceived separation from the rest of society. I only learned later, when I took developmental psychology classes, how normal these feelings are for someone my age, but at the time I just accepted that I was weird. This belief was continuously reinforced by my parents and peers who were constantly teasing me because of my strange interests. So there again you see where it's really starting to get to him, even in ways that he doesn't understand until later. About the time that he wrote to Dahmer, he also wrote to Richard Ramirez. He found Ramirez intriguing because instead of learning the victim someplace... He went to the victim. He entered their homes. He would become sexually aroused during the killing and was filled with rage. What he did to approach Ramirez is he portrayed himself as a high priest of a satanic cult active in Las Vegas. Uh, Jason Moss is from Las Vegas, by the way. He researched Satanism. He read the Satanic Bible. He looked up the basic philosophy of Satanism, including symbols and charms used by satanic followers. He tried to watch faces of death, but passed out. And if you don't know what Faces of Death is, it's actual footage of a man being sacrificed in a ritual conducted by a group of Satanists in Texas. Now, I think that there have actually been several Faces of Death movies, if I remember correctly. I just know that over the past, I don't know, it feels like my entire life I've heard of Faces of Death movies where they show people being murdered. So they're like real life snuff films, apparently. And he was like, well, I can handle this. I can watch horror movies. But it's a little different when you see real people doing it. Ramirez wanted some pictures of the hot chicks that were in the his sa- in the in a satanic cult. Now, Jason so hap- happened to have a friend that had model friends, so his friend actually gave him pictures of the models, and he would send them to Ramirez, saying that, "Oh, these are girls of my cult." <laughs> so, not only did Manson have his own stationery, Ramirez had his own stationery as well. Along the bottom was a roll of skeletons hol- was a row of skeletons holding hands. Written on the sides were "Hands of Doom and Gloom," and Evil hands are happy hands. So that's, that's fun. He was open to answering questions that Jason asked, like how he felt, like did he feel powerful while killing? So Ramirez, as you can imagine, was pretty forthcoming because he's never been secretive or ashamed about anything that he did. If anything, he's proud of it. He would also send lots of drawings. So there'd be lots of pentagram drawings. He liked to send drawings of, dis- of dismembered women and things like that, which he, there are some pictures in the book of of drawings that were sent to Jason. Again, Jason reiterates that he had assumed that he would be safe, but when it came to my mental outlook, I couldn't have been more wrong. So he starts having nightmares where Ramirez is going to kill a woman in front of him and he's helpless to help her and things like that. So obviously it was really, really starting to get to him. Of course, in the meantime, Gacy is pushing for more attention with bizarre demands. Ramirez was wanting to meet him and call him, but he didn't think he could handle talking to both Ramirez and Gacy on the phone. So he made an excuse, like, we don't have a phone. I don't know. Family and friends were seeing the strain he's under. He would overreact to ordinary things. Like, he went to the theater with his brother. He saw a dude who looked suspicious with a bag. And he assumed that the guy was going to shoot up the theater. So he made his brother leave. Well, so this was written in 1999. Well, that's what... It came out in 1999. So, and certainly by now, with all the shootings and actual theater shootings, that doesn't seem so far-fetched to us, which is really fucking sad. But... It just showed how it was seeping in, how it was really getting to him. He basically started to see everything as a threat. Things were heating up with Gacy, so he wound up taking a break from Ramirez, and then he had to cut things off with Dahmer. He told Ramirez he was going to jail for beating his girlfriend, and that's why he wouldn't be able to write for a while. When he finally wrote again, Ramirez responded, asking if he was in touch with The Order of the Evil Eye or The Hand of Death. He thanked him for the pictures, asked him if there were any good movies he's watched— And he wanted to know about the beating of the girlfriend. Quote, did you break her jaw? Did you stick needles in her feet and hands? Did you record her howls? Because those are questions you would normally ask. When he read that Ramirez asked those specific questions, he was trying to figure out, like, did he really think that I would do those? Or was he telling me that's what I should have done? Was he recommending things? Like, what He said that later he learned he was actually, Ramirez was actually telling him what Ramirez wanted him to do to his girlfriend on his behalf, I was now his implement of destruction. He gave Jason advice on how to clean up after raping and killing. So he's getting tips from Gacy on how to sell himself, getting tips from Ramirez on how to kill people and clean up after himself. So he was, like, getting the um, the TED Talks of serial killers. True crime TED Talks, straight from the source. Gacy was still pressuring him about his younger brother. He wants, He wanted a picture, and he says to Jason... Don't worry, he's not going to replace you as my number one bitch. And if you don't hurry with those pictures, I'm going to make you suck on my stick for a while. So that's something to think about before you go to bed tonight. Jason made it sound like he was experimenting with his brother just to get Gacy off his back. So again, we see Gacy suggests something. Jason tries to appease him and, you know, kind of delay it. But then eventually he has to give in to Gacy and make it seem like he's doing some of the things that Gacy wants him to do just to try to get him off his back. Jason says... When I tried to field these questions, I discovered to my horror that I had to actually visualize the events as he described them. Mentally, the cumulative effect was something like sexual abuse. He was actually making me think of the most horrid, revolting sexual scenes I could ever imagine. And, in fact, for several months afterward, I was totally asexual. I stopped having sexual fantasies and didn't think about sex whatsoever. This seemed to be the only way I could enter Gacy's world, or rather, allow him entrance into mine without completely breaking down. So that's huge. I mean, having nightmares and fighting with your family, those are all terrible things. And then to stop having sexual responses to things and to cut off your sexuality to deal with it, I mean, this was obviously completely taking over his life. Jason was still writing from, as both himself and his brother, and when he wrote as his brother, he would make sure to use a different typeface and different diction, and Gacy was obviously buying it. So when Jason would read the letters that were to his brother... Gacy would write to his brother in the most seductive way possible, feeding him graphic sexual fantasies in an attempt to bring him under his control. So obviously he never let his brother see these letters, although his brother was still having fucking nightmares. Jason wondered how one of the most cynical and suspicious individuals was so easy to believe everything that Jason was telling him. And he wanted to take credit for being a master storyteller, but he realized that Gacy needed it to be true. I mean, he had nothing but his fantasies. He's in prison and he's on death row. So really, the letters were his only reality. Later, he learned from one of Gacy's acquaintances that he did, in fact, believe everything that Jason told him was on the level. He finally had too much of the conversation that he was doing as his little brother with Gacy. And so his little brother letters became dry and tedious. And he would talk about his girlfriend. So Gacy got pissed. Gacy yelled at the younger brother in his next letter. And then he pleaded with Jason to get the boy back in line. Again, I'm not going to get into too much details, but he was very specific about what Gacy wanted the brothers to do together. And what's interesting is he would even say things that, so Gacy liked to sit on the chest of his victims. And so that would come into what he said that the brothers should be doing. So it's interesting how the things that he, he did to his victims, even though he claims he never did it, that that was what he was suggesting for Jared and Jason to be doing. In one of the letters to Jared, Gacy made it sound like he was a big brother. So he said he's a big brother to Jared just like he's a big brother to Jason. And so he kind of made it seem like he's part of the family. And he also seemed like he was grooming Jared to become a potential surrogate who could act out the things that Gacy actually wanted to be doing. But the problem is, is Jared wasn't complying. Jason said, The whole time Gacy was teaching Jared tricks to dominate and abuse me, he was tutoring me as well in the art of being a victim. In response to his insistent urgings, I'd been reporting stories of hustling on the street, all of course spun out of whole cloth. He was very explicit in the acts he wanted me to to perform and what I should charge for these services. For example, for a golden shower, in which I was supposed to allow a man to urinate on my face, I should demand $50. He also advised that during sadomasochistic sex, if the guy started to beat me up, I'd be better off if I just went along with it. He continued to say he was innocent and he had all kinds of excuses and reasons. It seemed like he was in denial about stuff like being beaten, abused by his dad. And he said that he felt nothing about nothing but love for his dad and that other stories that were said about him were false. Like he did not have sex with bodies in the mortuary that he worked at and that he had never raped anyone. The stakes got raised when Gacy said he would pay for Jason to come see him during spring break. Naturally, his parents were a little concerned, especially his mother. So she spoke to Gacy herself and he said, first... I've never killed anyone. Second, if I did hurt your son in any way, they'd take away all my privileges. Well, Jason realized he didn't mention that his scheduled execution date was weeks away, so he actually had very little to lose. Gacy also had his mom speak to the warden. The warden turned out to be one of the guards posing as the warden. So the mom thinks she's talking to the warden, and the warden's like, look, he's going to be supervised. There'll be a, a glass wall- barrier between them. To tell you the truth, I suspected something funny might be going on, but there was no way I was going to say anything and ruin this opportunity. Even if everything wasn't set up as Gacy's wardens said it would be, I was confident I could handle an old fat man in handcuffs. None of us were really aware of the extent to which Gacy had a firm hold on the prison and its staff. Jason actually called the FBI and asked for tips. So once they realized he was telling the truth, they did give him some suggestions on how to handle it. And they asked if he could look at the files that Gacy had, because Gacy had files in-depth files on all of his victims, and they suspected he had information they didn't. So they asked him, hey, if you know, you have a chance, look over the stuff and tell us what you see. A guy that looked like Gacy picked Jason up from the airport. It was Ken, who was a relative of Gacy's, and he's a gopher for Gacy. He basically ran around and did errands. When Jason got to the prison, he was left alone with Gacy just in handcuffs. When they shook hands, Gacy had pointedly looked at Jason's crotch, and Jason wanted to run away. Of course, we know he did not. There were several rooms that they could have chosen. Gacy picked the tiny room with just chairs sitting next to each other and a piece of wood that they could balance on their knees like a table. He noticed that Gacy was close to the guards. They joked. He, he had nicknames for them. If he didn't like his lunch, he'd send it back for something else and they would bring something different to him. So at first they start off and they're, everything's going okay and they're just chatting and, and everything. While they're just having a conversation, he notices that Gacy's kind of looking around to make sure they're alone. Then all of a sudden, he, he gave him a look, and Jason said, Looking into his eyes, I experienced the most intense, powerful feeling of emptiness I'd ever felt. There was no warmth, no humanness there. Rather, it was as if I was staring at something feral. So he starts yelling at Jason and berating him. And he's like, you're here with me now. I brought you here. You'll do whatever I say. You know that? And, you know, of course, Jason wants to keep playing the victim. He's like, I know, I know. And Jason was thinking, well, I'm younger, I'm bigger and stronger, and he's handcuffed. So he's thinking, I could could handle him if it comes down to a fight. Well, Gacy keeps trying to tell him how weak he is. And he just keeps berating him and yelling at him and threatening to cut off their relationship well, he also started was playing with his crotch while he was yelling. And uh, he obviously had, a, had an erection while he was doing all this. He yelled at him for like two hours. Jason said, toward the end, So conditioned had I become to playing the whiny, groveling sycophant, I actually started doubting myself. I began to lose my bearings, forgetting what I was doing there and what I was after. And then Gacy began joking around as if the previous two hours hadn't happened. So then he was totally knocked off balance. And then basically he, like, started the conversation over from the top. Like, they had just be started talking and nothing else had ever happened. So we just totally had, had him off balance and didn't know what the hell was going on. He tries to get Gacy back on track about the murders. Whenever Jason questions him about Gacy's response, Gacy... He says, Gacy adopted the same pedantic tone I'd heard so many times before as if I were some kind of idiot who was altering the facts. Listening to him could be infuriating because his arguments always sounded halfway convincing. Only after you carefully poked and prodded at his version of events did his lies unravel. Gacy basically shuts down and then starts looking around to see if any guards are nearby. And Jason starts getting a little nervous. And then Gacy starts to yell again. He says, the guards are on the other side of the bars. Do you know how long it would take them to get here if you screamed? Probably two minutes. I could kill you right now if I wanted. You know that, don't you? I could take this pen and stick it right here in your neck. You'd bleed to death all over the floor by the time you got any help. He reached down into his sock, where he'd hidden a small packet of baby oil, which was heavily implying that he was going to try to use it to attack him. And he says, see that chair, Jason? That's where I'd do you. They wouldn't find your body until all your blood ran on the floor. Jason was thinking, now is the time to take control of the situation. But he was paralyzed. He was not able to react at all. So then Jason tries to, is eventually able to kind of break out of his paralysis. And he starts to look at the folders that Gacy had brought in. Well, as he's looking at the folders, he realizes Gacy's behind him. And he thought that Gacy was going to try to strangle him. But he was actually trying to kiss him. So Jason's like, whoa. (laughs) And he recoils and Gacy's like confused. But Jason was not playing the part. So again, he was being a bad victim. So Gacy starts yelling again and being abusive. And then he takes it out and was stroking himself in front of Jason. And Jason is like, what the fuck? And, you know, he's still trying to control the situation. So he's just saying like, hey, you know, don't, you know, you don't need to do this. And trying to sedate him, you know, just trying to appease him. And while he's trying to think of a way out of the situation. Of course, uh, Gacy is yelling at him to look at his cock. And finally, after all the berating and everything that's happening, Jason breaks down. And he starts to cry. He starts sobbing. And he's like, why are you doing this to me? Well, that did it. And Gacy was deflated. Both emotionally and physically. So he was disgusted with Jason. Because what he was getting off on was Jason's fear. And when Jason starts to cry, he's like, no, I don't want you crying. I want you scared. So Gacy put it away. And he's like, just fucking go. But Jason's like, no, you know, it's not what I want. He just says, instead of just leaving, he just, inside, he just felt like success at any cost. Like he could not abort his mission until he feels like he cracked Gacy's code. As he's about to leave, the day was thankfully over with. Gacy hands him a pair of bikini briefs and says, wear these for me tomorrow. And he gives him a silver bracelet. At this point, he's just, <laughs> Jason's just completely thrown off balance because he's been yelled at, and then he's been talked nicely to, and then yelled at, and then almost sexually abused. And then he's given gifts. So this is exactly what Gacy is trying to do, is to keep him completely off balance. Ken had picked up Jason, and Ken admitted that he felt that Gacy had done all the crimes. Ken and Jason believe that Gacy was only allowed visits from his attorneys and family, so he was able to look normal to people. But then apparently Jason's visit had caused him to relapse and to show that side of himself again. Instead of leaving again, he goes back because he was not going to back down. Gacy, of course, is saying that he didn't do it, but he's saying, you know, even if I didn't do it, they all deserve to die. If he'd lead the kind of lives they did, something was bound to happen. Once Jason acknowledged that Gacy probably didn't do it, then Gacy would talk freely about the crimes as if someone else had done them. And so he asked him, Gacy, you know, like, who was the guy who killed the kids? And Gacy says, I think it's a group of guys. Probably drugs were involved. Jason's like, oh my, doesn't it piss you off that these people out there outsmarted and manipulated you? Like, they came to your house, they used your stuff, and they framed you. How could you not have seen it coming? And so he gets... Of course, Gacy starts screaming because he likes to do that. But he was angrier than he had been yet. And he said, those fucking kids couldn't control a goddamn thing. Nobody framed me. They just got lucky and I took the fall. So you can see he's just all over the place with his story. Like he was framed. He wasn't framed. He was uh, the only thing that's consistent is that he was innocent. And of course, now it's raining. So it's interesting because he said, would you like to see the way I supposedly killed those boys? Jason says, you mean the rope trick? And Gacy says, give me your wrist. I'll show you how it works. So if you know about Gacy, you already know what the rope trick is. But basically, it's he'd put some rope around the neck of a boy under his control. Usually, the boy was handcuffed with arms behind his back. And he'd twist the rope once. Next, he'd place a stick or some other object behind the twisted rope and slowly turn it. So this way, he could tighten it or loosen it as he wanted to. What he did is the bracelet that he had given to Jason, he put a pen in it. And started to twist the bracelet to give him an example of how it would feel. And then he grabs his arm. Now, Gacy is handcuffed, but he still grabs the guy's arm. Jason's sitting down. So then he basically puts it in his face. And um, I know it's a surprise that he's erect again. But he's basically pushing his penis in Jason's face. So Jason is starting to get, obviously, a little bit upset. And he finally realizes... I can't be a victim. So he's ready to fight. He's getting poised to fight back. And he's like, I, if I can find a way to kick him in the crotch, some way, kick him in his stomach, I will teach him a lesson. And right as shit was about to go down, the guards showed up with Ken because Ken needed to have a meeting with Gacy. So right when it was about to get out of, out of control, well, <laughs> even more so, Guards show up and interrupt the moment. Thank God. Now, while Gacy was going to have this meeting with Ken, he had arranged for Jason to talk to Andrew. I don't want to say it right. I want to call him Coco Relias. Coco Relias? The uh, Chicago Rippers. So I did an episode where I discussed the Chicago Rippers. So make sure to listen to that one if you have not. But Andrew was one of a set of brothers. So him and his brother were involved with Robin Gecht, who was the leader of the group. And they killed women and cut off their breasts and supposedly had a satanic cult or something. So Andrew happened to be on death row with Gacy and friends with him. And the interesting thing is Robin Gecht had once worked for Gacy. So that's an interesting little uh, small world thing there. Thankfully, he had some time to breathe after this tense moment with Gacy. And Andrew was laid back and excited, so he wasn't—he didn't try to do anything to Jason, thankfully. Gacy apparently called him Coco, because Coco Reyes is, is the last name. And it's just disturbing to see a cute nickname on a murderer. But I guess that's what makes life interesting. The thing about Gacy is Gacy's a leader, and Andrew's a follower, so it makes sense that they might become friendly in prison. When he was talking to Andrew, Andrew said that he had a PMA, which is something that Gacy says. PMA is a positive mental attitude. So it was interesting for Jason to hear something that Gacy often said to come out of Andrew's mouth. But again, it's when you have your leader and disciple relationship that kind of makes sense. He mentioned that when his case was appealed, which he hoped would happen, he'd look Jason up for beers. He asked if Jason would introduce him to his family. (laughs) And Jason was like, oh, okay, hold on now. Then he realized it was probably more about, do you really want a friendship with me or are you here just for entertainment? So thankfully, before he had to say anything, the guard came and took him back to Gacy, which it's good because he didn't have to answer the question, but then it's bad because he was going back to Gacy. However, Gacy was nice to him. So they had the rest of their visit without incident. Jason goes back to his hotel and Gacy calls him and Jason tells him, I have to go home because my dad's mad at me. And he's demanding I come back. And Gacy's upset because Gacy's like, I'm paying for everything. So what the hell? But Jason's like, you can't, I can't go against my parents. I'm still a teenager. What am I going to do? Gacy actually was pretty cool about it. And Jason, Jason was supposed to come back for a third day. And that's why Gacy's pissed. But Jason just finally got, after everything that happened, thank God he finally got the common sense and left. Now we're towards the end here. When he's on his way home, he said, As much as I was hurting, as confused as I felt, the worst part was being so alone. I knew there was nobody I could confide in at home about what had really happened. I'd put up a brave front to my parents, minimize the danger I confronted. In fact, I'd tell them very little. And some of what had gone down, well, it was too embarrassing to tell even Jared. Gacy's reducing me to tears, for example. When I saw my father waiting for me as I exited the plane, I wanted to break into tears and run into his arms. I just wanted him to hold me. But I knew that if I told him what had really happened, the long leash I'd grown accustomed to would be shortened considerably. That would be the end of finding a receptive audience for my next exciting idea. So basically, he just uh, stuffed it down and just made it seem like everything was, was fine. Gacy kept trying to contact him. He even asked if he would move there and said that Ken would help him find a house. Jason had letters waiting on him from Ramirez and Manson. So they were still writing to him even through this thing. He also contacted Henry Lee Lucas and Elmer Wayne Henley. He told Lucas he was an art dealer who might sell some of Lucas's art because he was also being artistic in prison. However, Lucas was so focused on money and he wouldn't really talk about any of the details of anything, so Jason stopped writing to him. Now, Elmer Wayne Henley, if you are familiar, he assisted Dean Corll in killing boys. So what's interesting is the way that Jason describes Henley as he says, Henley was only 17 when he joined a gang of serial killers who abducted 27 young boys, yada, yada, yada. So by saying a gang of serial killers, I feel like that's a bit much because it was Dean Corll was the main guy. And yeah, he got Henley and another, guy, another kid to help him, but they were more like his ass- accomplices, his assistants. It wasn't really like they were all on the same level killing. I don't know. Maybe that sounds like it's they all were still involved with getting kids and the kids wound up killed. But Dean was, Coral, was definitely the leader of it. And he just used the other two. So I think saying a gang of serial killers makes it seem a bit different than what it was. At any rate, he was direct with Henley instead of trying to come up with a story. And he was just like, look, I just want to know how things went for you and I want to be your friend, so I just want to find out your side of the story. Henley didn't respond for two months and said that he was trying to do his time in isolation, and since he wasn't really very responsive, Jason basically stopped writing to him. So there really isn't much about the Lucas and Henley interactions. At this point, after everything that happened with Gacy, he was scared that since Gacy has Ken and is able to do things and has contacts and is able to bribe people and things like that he started to get scared that someone might come after him at Gacy's behest so he decides I need to tell my parents exactly what's going on because this may affect them too because he lives with his parents so he told Gacy he couldn't talk as much because his dad was being a dick but then as he was saying it he realized that Gacy may send someone to come after his dad he confesses to his family and they're not happy obviously but it's better than he expects I believe they do also go for legal counseling to, you know, to cover their bases and see what they needed to do. At one point, Jason was home. Ken called. He got the answering machine and he it was like a party line thing where he, Ken called, but had Gacy on the line and they start talking and they don't realize the, the voicemail thing was recording them still. So they're having this conversation and they're even talking about Jason. So Jason finally gets on there and he knows that it's recording and he's like, hey, look, I was playing you this whole time and Gacy's like, well, you can say that and I'll go to the media about, or I'll tell your parents that you've been having sex with your brother. And Jason's like, look, i made that up. Everybody knows everything. Everybody knows that I didn't do anything that I said and that you were trying to get me to have sex with my brother and you did these things. And then he turned the table and said, well, I can go to the media and tell them because I'm sure they'd like find that interesting. So Gacy just hung up. And that was basically the end of their interactions somehow Jason managed to get A's all through this so through everything he was going through he was able to get A's it just that's just amazing to me when it came time for Gacy to get executed Jason was home with his family and his girlfriend and then he died by lethal injection so after the death Jason went off to be by himself so obviously he had mixed emotions about everything as you can imagine, and I know it still seems like after everything that he put Jason through, you would think that there'd be a part of him that's relieved. But since he had that compassion, they did have some kind of a relationship, even if it was a fucked up one. He still did feel upset that Gacy was killed and just and, and being upset about just how the complexity of everything and just how everything was so fucked up. It was a obviously a very difficult time period. However, he Jason wound up working with the Make-A-Wish Foundation as a wish granter. He was also in the Big Brother program. He said, and I quote, I probably felt safer around people who wouldn't try to hurt me. As a result of seeing firsthand the evil that people are capable of, I was still grappling with some trust issues. So that's, it's intriguing to to note that that is what he did with it, is he went like the complete opposite way and started helping people and being around people who were trying to make things better. He did have an internship with the Secret Service and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. The book ends with him talking about speaking at a high school. So after he went through all these adventures, he went back to his high school and and was talking about things that he had learned. And he wanted to make it clear that what he had been through, it did make him a stronger person, but it also damaged him. You know, that he went through that now he is kind of scarred and he doesn't want... He didn't want kids to feel like they should just go out and try everything and everything was going to be okay. He wanted to make it clear, like, you need to think through what you're doing, and this is what I did. I'm not sorry that I did it, but it definitely had its toll on me. Then the afterword is by the professor that wrote the book with him, the professor that had that he had talked to about writing this paper. They actually went to interview Henry Lee Lucas together, and he couldn't believe that Lucas was not forthcoming and then Jason was actually get able to get lucas to open up and start talking about things so he does have a knack and a a certain type of personality where he's able to talk to people and get them to open up so he probably would have been a good fbi profiler now a quick note that the professor said is that i find it significant that jason a kickboxer and weightlifter who towered over gacy was brought under the killer's complete control by words alone In spite of Jason's rationalizations that he could have overpowered Gacy at any moment, it appears he was saved by the bell, or rather, was rescued by Gacy's nephew, who happened to arrive on the scene. Even today, this nags at Jason. It was okay to pretend to be a victim, but he'll never forgive himself for actually being trapped in that role. He points out that Gacy was as sensitive and perceptive as any trained psychologist for sizing up Jason's vulnerabilities, just as Jason was doing with Gacy, by alternating between two distinct personas— By switching from good cop to bad cop, he was able to keep the young man off balance. Of course, victims like Jason are not only paralyzed by the killer himself, but by the very idea of him. Where Jason erred most was in his own perceived invincibility. He made the mistake that a police officer learns the first day on the job. Don't underestimate anyone. So that's the overall theme, I guess, of the book is you go into something thinking that you have it all under control. But with people like Gacy, you can't just assume that. And even if you feel like you have a good grip on things, you just need to keep in mind that when you're dealing with a predator, you have to be on guard. You have to be careful. And it was really interesting to read and to see Jason's point of view from before he went through everything and how he felt afterwards and as he was going through it. And and then years later, his feelings about it and what he realized that was happening, that he didn't realize was happening. You know, his state of mind and everything. It's easier to look back and say, okay, that's where that I fucked up there, and this is where this kind of got out of control, and it's harder to do when you're in the moment. So I enjoyed reading it. It was kind of difficult at times, obviously because of the subject matter. Now, at one point I noticed that there was a movie called Dear Mr. Gacy, and I hap- it was in my just searching through... Amazon for things to watch. I saw a movie. I think I probably typed in serial killers and I was just curious what things what movies they had. And I saw Dear Mr. Gacy and that it was about this Jason Moss book. So I kept it in my brain and I watched it after I read the book. In the movie, it is William Forsythe, who I recognize from Raising Arizona as one of the guys that broke out of prison and I mean he's been in a ton of other things. So William Forsythe is actually Gacy in the movie. The actor who plays Jason Moss is named Jesse Moss. So immediately I was looking up like, whoa, what's the, does it have, does he he a relative? Because that would be crazy to have a relative playing you in a movie. There is no relation between Jesse Moss and Jason Moss. How I knew Jesse Moss is he is in Tucker and Dale versus Evil. And in that movie, spoiler alert, he winds up being the son of a serial killer. So he basically like turns into a serial killer at the end, which is kind of funny that this actor played a serial killer and a relative of a serial killer winds up being in this movie interacting with a serial killer. I think the acting in it was pretty good. It was a It's a 2010 movie from Canada. I basically paused the credits so I could look all this stuff up. And while I was looking to see if Jesse was related to, to Jason, I did happen to see that Jason committed suicide in, it was June 6th of 2006. And there has been speculation because that's 6-6 of 06, if that had anything to do with it. But he shot himself in the head. He had been a criminal attorney. He was married. And um, obviously he had been having issues with depression and things like that. But he, So it was unfortunate to read that this kid who had gone through all this and became a, a, an attorney and was really trying to do good in the world, that he wound up killing himself. So that was a big bummer. And I'm mentioning it now instead of at the end because I don't want to end on <laughs> such a big fucking bummer. So I kind of had that in the back of my head when I was watching the movie. The other reason to note that is that the people who decided to make it into a movie had been talking with him, and then when they reached back out, they found out that he had killed himself. So they worked with his widow to work on the movie, because he killed himself in 2006, and the movie came out in 2010. Ways that the movie was different than the book, they do have Jason writing a term paper. What I thought was interesting is when they would show pictures of Gacy, they would show um, Jason looking at articles about Gacy but they would put pictures of William Forsyth in there and like some of the victims they would put a picture of the actor that was playing the victim in the movie so I liked that they tried to put that in there and make it seem like it was all part of the same you're in that world they had his brother named Alex in the movie instead of Jared when they had Gacy reading his letter it didn't match what was in the book it was like way longer and some of the things were the same and the gist of it of course was the same I kind of wondered if there was more to the letters than what was put in the book, but he didn't say, here's an excerpt from the letter. He would just say, here's, on some of it, he would say, here's an excerpt, but on some things he wouldn't. So, I don't know. It was interesting to see what they put in there that was the same as in the book and what they added. They have Gacy sending him a questionnaire in his first letter, which I didn't see in the book. It shows... Jason going to the cops for more information on Gacy and them not really being forthcoming. And I don't remember in the book him saying that he went to the cops to find things out. They show Gacy painting some of the one of the famous pictures. They have Jason try to talk to a victim of Gacy's that got away. And I don't that wasn't in the book. So in the book, he has Gacy says, hey, I want to call you. And he gives Gacy his number and they plan when he's going to call. Now, he does throw him off sometimes by calling him in the middle of the middle of the night and stuff in the movie. He calls Jason at five o'clock in the morning and Jason is surprised and he's like, how did you get this number? And he's like, oh, I found it. And he's like, what are you doing? And Jason's like, it's five in the morning. I'm sleeping. And he acts like, oh, it's a time difference. I think it was implying like that he was keeping an eye on him. He was able to find out about him and he was keeping him off balance right off the bat. Again, this is where reality does not meet up with the drama. So they had to create some drama for the movie, which I get. I'm not in love with things like that because it's not true. But he did try to keep Jason off guard. So I think it's okay that they did that. They do show Jason talking to a male prostitute, except they have that the prostitute drugged him. Again, we see it where the movie, you know, they're trying to amp things up. The movie, his girlfriend's name is Alyssa instead of Jen. They do show Gacy advocating suicide. I think they even have him saying those same exact lines. So that was exactly as in the book. They do show Gacy naked in the shower singing O Holy Night. Now they just show his butt. So that was an interesting little thing to throw in there is the um, juxtaposition of Gacy showering and singing O Holy Night. They are good at showing his conflict that he's Jason's conflict that he starts having with other people. He does have um, a moment that's like a taxi driver moment in the movie where he has a gun and he's like, you know, basically like, you talking to me?" And his mom walks in. Of course, he hides the gun. But so there is that moment where that's not exactly in the book, but I feel like that's probably not not too far from from what could have really happened. So I think you know, that's still a good they're, they're still trying to show how it is affecting him. He, so again, to amp up the drama, they had him beat up his brother's bully. And in the book, he actually gets his brother to beat up his own bully. So he encourages his brother to stand up for himself. He's like, I'm going to be here with you. He goes up to the bully and says, look, I want you to fight my brother right now. Get it out of the way. And I don't want you messing with him any other time. And now the, the brother ended up getting beaten up. He didn't win. But the bully was then cool. And he left them alone because he got it out of his system or whatever. In the movie, they have him just lose his shit and beat up the bully. Again, I understand the dramatic effect. I don't know that you needed to add all that stuff in there to make this story interesting, but I do understand why they wanted to do that and throw that in there that way. Another moment where they just added drama where they didn't have to or where it didn't exist in the book is they have him go to a prostitute and he looks like he's going to strangle her and then he controls himself and he runs away. I don't recall that in the book and I'm pretty sure I would have remembered that and I would have noticed it when I was going back through looking at my notes and stuff. So that was another thing where they were trying to show how much it affected his life and I guess it wasn't exciting enough how it was affecting his life so they added that in there unless maybe that really happened and he didn't put it in the book. I don't know. He finally talks to the guy who got away from Gacy and again, wasn't in the book but would have been interesting. They have Gacy attacking Jason in prison, they don't show him take it out or anything like that. So it's they do have him saying, this is where I would do you, know, this is where I would do you, this is where I'd kill you. But they have Jason fighting back, and the guards come in and removes him. Then they have Jason actually breaking down in front of his mom and crying. So where in the book he said, I wanted to cry to my dad, I didn't. They actually show him crying to his mom. Gacy does threaten him, and then Jason tells him it was all a sham. Gacy's speechless and he hangs up. So that is pretty accurate to the book. And then instead of being out with his family during the execution, they have him in the tub by himself. The very end of the movie is that Gacy had sent a letter before his execution saying that they're alike. So that was another interesting twist. Is in the book, I don't feel that Jason was worried that he was like the serial killers, even though he did say that he understood that what he was doing was kind of similar. But in the movie, that was a point that they was, were really trying to drive home is is that fear of, am I actually like these people? And they do show a clip of the real Jason on the Lisa show, if you remember that. L-E-E-Z-A. And then they show the picture that was taken in real life of Jason with Gacy in prison. I would say William Forsyth was really good as Gacy. And while I said that Gacy didn't really have a creepy voice... Forsythe was really good at being creepy and being subtle and he has that really cool like voice where he can be soothing and creepy but you know so you can kind of see how he's able to reel Jason in and keep him off balance and things like that so it was I think he was really good I think Jesse Moss was good and I mean there were a few moments here and there where I mean it kind of felt like sometimes a made for TV movie but overall I think the acting was pretty good. They did try to stay true to the book. Like I said, they obviously added some things in there to make it more dramatic, which I don't necessarily think you needed, but I see why they did it. And I kind of wonder what Jason would have thought is when they show him beating up the bully and they show him almost kill a prostitute, what he would have thought about seeing that. And of course, he never did get to see it, but I think that would be kind of the weird part about having something that I published turn into a movie and they put me me in these situations that didn't actually happen although like I said I suppose it's possible maybe he left those out I don't think he would because he didn't really sugarcoat things so I think they probably were just added for effect that's pretty much that I basically spoiled everything but you should still watch it because it's a whole different experience when you are experiencing it for yourself the last victim by Jason Moss and the movie is Dear Mr. Gacy. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. It is for free at the moment. I will be doing more book and movie reviews in the future, just to kind of... So we're still talking about serial killers, but it's still something a little bit different. I know it has made me... I've been watching things and reading things that I wouldn't normally have done. So hopefully it will expand your horizons as well. Make sure that you have something to cleanse your palate after reading about Gacy or watching Gacy because it is icky and it makes you feel terrible. So maybe turn on, I like to watch Bob's Burgers and things like that. So that's what I do to cleanse my palate is watch Bob's Burgers and hang out with Igor. Well, thank you very much for tuning in. Up next will be another Igor episode. And then I will be doing some Strangler episodes. And we also have plans to talk about local serial killers. Or local murders. Igor will cover just local murders in general, local true crime. I will cover the serial killer. So you have strangling to look up forward to and local serial killers to look forward to. So that that's exciting. Plus CrimeCon. We will tell you more about CrimeCon and lots of fun and exciting things coming up. So we appreciate your support and for being a lab rat. Thank you once again for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and murderlabmedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on murderlabmedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats.